need help. I remembered him again today. I told him he needed to go, but he just laughed. Make Reggie leave. That was a note that I received in my brother's handwriting last week, slipped under the door of my apartment on a folded square of index card. It wasn't signed, but I knew it was him. Aside from the writing, it reminded me of when we were little. I'd been bad sick for over a year when I was in middle school. Couldn't see people if they even had a sniffle. There'd be days or weeks at a time when my brother Mark couldn't visit. But every day, he'd sneak and slip me a little note under my bedroom door. A funny drawing, or a joke. Something to let me know he was always there for me. We weren't as close now. And it's not that we didn't get along anymore. We do, but we're both just busy. He's working as a mechanical engineer at the base outside of town, and I'm swamped with applying to grad schools for next fall. It's not strange for us to go a few weeks without talking and a few months without seeing each other, and he'd never been to my apartment since I'd moved in two years earlier. Why would he come all that way and not knock or text me? And what was that note even talking about? So I called him to find out. Hey man, what's up? Uh, did you leave this note under my door? At the apartment, I mean. There was a pause, and then... Note? (laughs) What kind of note? Another moment of silence, and then before I could answer, Mark blurted out, I don't know about anything. I felt myself frowning as I held the phone to my ear. Why was he acting so funny? Uh, I got a note slipped under my door. It was weird, but it looks like your handwriting. Kind of reminded me of when we were kids, too. Ah, uh, um, I don't know, man. I, I'm sorry, but it wasn't me. I could tell he wanted to get off the phone, and I almost just cut it off there, but then I remembered the reason I thought the note was from Mark. Hey, wait a second. I picked up the note and read it out loud to him. See? It says Reggie. Mark was silent for several seconds this time before he responded. I don't know what you're asking me. My frown deepened. Reggie, man, you remember? The dirtbag roommate you had for a few weeks last year? Disappeared all of a sudden and left all of his junk behind? Stiffed you with having to pay his half of the rent when you couldn't find another roommate? That douchebag? Oh, yeah. I guess I'd forgotten. Uh, Paul, I, I have to go. It's good hearing from you. And then the line was dead. I don't claim I've always been the best little brother. I can be immature and selfish, and I know I started more fights growing up with Mark than was my fair share. But I love my brother, and I knew something wasn't right with him. He sounded more than just off. He sounded scared. I waited until that evening to head across town to his apartment. It was in a nice area, but unfortunately for Mark, that also meant it was more expensive. He'd been close to not re-signing for a second year when I suggested he just find a roommate. Mark had resisted the idea at first. 
he liked his space and solitude, and the idea of inviting a stranger into his home wasn't very appealing at first. A few weeks of looking at worse neighborhoods and longer commutes, he changed his mind, though. And by the end of last August, he was telling me about his new roommate, Reggie. I never met the guy, but according to Mark, he was a weird dude. Quiet and clean, he barely knew he was there most of the time, but when Reggie hung out in the common areas of the apartment, it kind of gave my brother the creeps. Mark said he would just sit, reading or watching TV, but constantly humming some tune under his breath. And the whole time, you'd have a sense that he was just pretending to look at his book or show, that he was really studying you. It's weird, yeah, but Mark can be overly dramatic. Plus, he really did need help with the rent, and I couldn't afford it. Money didn't seem to be a problem for Reggie, however. He'd paid two months in advance and said he'd paid for the rest of the year after he got back from his next lucrative job abroad. Mark never knew what the guy did for money or where he was traveling to. I joked once that he was probably a drug mule. The worried timbre of my brother's laugh made me stop making Reggie jokes after that. Maybe he was worried that Reggie was really sketchy, or maybe it was because this was last October, a few weeks after Reggie had gone abroad and never come back. Had he returned all these months later? Was he really refusing to leave and scaring my brother or something? I considered calling the cops before going over, but what could I tell them when I knew so little? And if Mark wouldn't talk to me about it on his own, my best bet was to just catch him by surprise, and see what was going on over there. When Mark opened his door, his eyes widened with surprise as his mouth drifted open. There was a moment, almost imperceptible but still there, when he started to just close the door back in my face. But then he seemed to catch himself, and gave me an awkward smile instead. Shit, man, this is a surprise. His eyes shifted sideways as though he was fighting the urge to look behind him. Uh, but this... This isn't a good time, okay? How about I call you when we meet up for lunch tomorrow or some... I gently reached out and put my hand on the door, my arm steady despite the hammering of my heart. Oh, God. Something was really wrong. He was terrified. I could see it on his face. Was he being held a hostage or something? Catching his gaze, I spoke barely above a whisper. You in danger? Is there someone here with you? Mark's eyes got even wider as he started shaking his head. No, no, just head home, man. Nothing is the map. I pushed past him, rushing into the apartment and trying to look everywhere at once. I half expected to hear a gunshot. He could jump by someone, but there was nothing other than Mark's increasingly loud protests. Standing in the front hall with a partial view of the kitchen and the living room, nothing looked out of place. Paul, I need you to get out of here. Right now. I looked at my brother. He was trying to sound stern and angry, the way he used to when he was left to watch me or our parents went out somewhere and left us at home. The adult voice, the daddy voice, the voice that said, I know best and it's my way or the highway. 
except that voice was trembling. And as I met his eyes again, I saw how terrified he was now, how afraid he seemed to be of something that was happening. How badly he didn't want me to be there. So I shook my head and started down the hall. Fuck that. I'm not going anywhere until I make sure you aren't in trouble, that nobody is hiding back there or some shit. I shot him an angry look as I prepared to open the door to the guest bathroom. And then I want you to tell me why you're acting like this, why you lied about dropping that note. He kept protesting as I went through his apartment, room by room, but it got fainter and feebler as I went. I saw nothing weird or sinister, no signs of trouble or someone else being there. Completing my circuit in the kitchen, I looked at him confusedly. So what's the deal, man? Are you on something? You're freaking me out, but I don't know what's wrong. Mark had grown increasingly tired and sad-looking as he followed me around the apartment. And by this point, he looked like a deflated balloon. Only his eyes, restlessly roaming from corner to corner of the room, had any life left in them. He seemed on the verge of saying something before changing his mind and shrugging. I... I think it's just stress, man. Yeah, I left you that note. It was just a practical joke, something like we used to do, you know. I miss my little brother, and it got my mind off shit at work for a little while. He gave a dry laugh. <laughs> Sorry it freaked you out, though. I just thought it'd be funny. He lowered his eyes, his voice quieter as he added. But I love you for caring and trying to help. I still didn't believe him, but I didn't know what else to do either. Are you sure? None of this sounds like something you'd normally do. Are you positive you're telling me the truth? He nodded, still meeting my eyes. Yeah, yeah, just got deadlines at work, making me squirrely. I really do miss hanging out. I don't have time to make many friends on the job anymore. Glancing into the corner again, he started moving toward the front hall. I'm beat tonight, but if you have time, I'd like to get together this weekend. Just text me. We'll figure something out. I followed him to the front door. He was getting rid of me, but I decided it was better to let it go for now and talk to him more about it this weekend. See if I could figure out a way to get him to open up about what was really going on. I'd walked outside the threshold of the apartment and was turning around to say bye when I heard it for the first time. Humming. It was faint, but distinct. Some strange tune drifting out of the darkness behind Mark. I expected him to ignore it, or maybe even look angry or surprised. Instead, he stepped forward, grabbed my shirt, bringing his face close to mine. He's back. He makes himself unseen most of the time, but he's back and he won't leave. You need to go. You need to get away and not come back. Don't trust me if I call you again. He can make me do things, make me forget I've done them. He shook me with a strength I didn't know he had. Do you fucking understand, Paul? I'm too far gone. You don't come back here, not ever. 
I was on the verge of tears that lay somewhere between anger and terror, shaking my head as I tried to pry his hands loose from my shirt. Oh, fuck that. You sent that note because... Mark yanked me close again, his own eyes shimmering as he pressed his forehead against my own. I didn't send you that fucking note. He did. With that, he shoved me back hard enough that I hit the far wall in the hallway and staggered to my knees. By the time I looked back up, he'd already shut and locked the door. I beat on it for a few minutes, but there was never any response at all. That was three days ago. I've called and texted Mark repeatedly since then. I've called our parents, who haven't heard from Mark in a few weeks, but didn't have any idea anything was wrong. I almost told them everything. But something held me back. Maybe it was just the strangeness, the unbelievability of it all. They think I was just being silly, oversensitive, because me and my big brother have grown apart. Maybe it was the sense that's been growing the last couple of days. That feeling of some unseen weight or pressure weighing down on me. At first I thought it was just a worry for Mark, and I'm sure that's part of it. Another part is this sensation of... Well, not being alone. I've started seeing things out of the corner of my eye. There's something there, lurking in the corner of the room in the shadows, just out of sight. If I turn to look or flip on a light, it's gone. Or, well, I guess it's more accurate to say that I can't see it. Because I never lose the sense that it's there, watching me. I woke up last night from a terrible dream. I don't remember all the details, but I was on a grassy plateau glowing with orange light. There were six stone tables and someone was singing, and I was so afraid, and then... I was awake. I got up, went to the kitchen, fixed a peanut butter sandwich I didn't really want, and stood eating it woodenly as I stared out the window over the sink. It was in the middle of the night and in the orange haze of a distant streetlight, I could see it was beginning to rain. And here I was, needing to be up in three hours, and instead of sleeping, I was standing here like a fucking... The song from my dream began behind me, though not in the clear and fragile notes I'd heard on that bright and terrible hill. This was a lower, deeper version, rumbling out slowly as something hummed it from the shadows of the nearby hall. My skin prickled as my breath caught in my throat. There was something in the reflection of the window, some vague figure caught between the light of the kitchen and the cold rain outside. It could have been my imagination, except for the humming. It could have been a trick of the light, except it was creeping up behind me with purpose. An image of Mike's sad, scared face came to me then, and in the flash of anger that followed, I spun around, wanting to confront the thing that had tormented my brother. There was nothing there. The kitchen was empty, and the humming had stopped. 
My hands shook as I found the sink behind me and leaned back on it for support. I could feel the thing, whatever it was, still there with me. I wanted to name it, to curse it, to tell Reggie to leave Mike alone, but somehow I didn't quite dare. Instead, I washed the remains of my discarded sandwich down the disposal. I went back to bed, improbable as it seemed, and I started to drift off immediately. And if some small and screaming part of myself heard the humming start again as I sank into sleep, I guess I was too far gone to care. The Petticodiac River, which passes through Moncton, New Brunswick, is said to be haunted. The locals refer to it as the Chocolate River, not because of the fancy chocolatier shop on its south bank, but because of the heavy sediments in the water, it's turned to a permanent shade of brown. In 1968, a causeway was built in an attempt at controlling the flow of water to prevent flooding in agricultural areas, and to connect Moncton to its neighboring town, Riverview. Up until then, the Chocolate River was home to one of the largest tidal bores on Earth, and had an ecosystem rich in marine life. After construction, the river died down to a trickle, and 85% of the creatures died. The locals urged the government to open the causeway doors in order to restore the river to its former glory. It wasn't until 2010 that the doors were open, finally, for good. The river began a slow healing process, and marine life gradually returned. Unfortunately, the restoration project came with a little something extra. Something sinister joined the wildlife of the chocolate-colored river. In fall of 2013, I flew to Moncton to visit my sister for a week. She and I had been best friends since childhood, but our lives had taken us in different paths, and a few years prior, she moved for work. We kept in touch through video calls and weekly chat sessions. She told me how friendly the people of Moncton were. It was the kind of town where everyone knew you and your relatives by name, even if you'd never met. Everyone was polite and lived a nice, quiet life. For my sister's description, an image of a quaint little village formed in my mind. Imagine my surprise when, upon arriving, I found a full-blown city. Though unobscured by skyscrapers, it was full of grocery stores, highways, malls, government, and university buildings, etc. It was nothing like what I'd imagined. I was shocked to see how big it actually was. My sister picked me up from the airport, and we drove back to her apartment for supper. We spent the evening catching up and geeking out in true sibling fashion. The next morning, my sister and I had to do her workplace. On the drive there, I spotted the Chocolate River. I expressed interest in checking out the tidal bore, a wave that climbed up a river against its current during high tide. My sister promised we could go to the next morning. Having checked out the schedule the previous night, I knew the morning tide was to come in around 4 a.m., and I had no desire to get up that early. We had no plans for the afternoon, so I asked if we could go and watch the evening tidal bore instead, which came in around 3 p.m. on that particular day. 
I remember her answer quite vividly, since it took me by surprise. She raised her eyebrows and shook her head quickly. Oh no, that's, that's dangerous, she said. I pressed her on the issue and she explained that there had been a lot of accidents where people had fallen in and drowned. I could not wrap my head around why the city had not built guardrails or why the morning tide was supposedly safer than the evening tide. We arrived at my sister's place of employment with two boxes of donuts for her co-workers. After using the sweets to assemble the team, my sister paraded me around and introduced me to everyone. She had not exaggerated when she told me about their hospitality. They were extremely friendly and downright delightful. My sister left me with the group while she took care of some last-minute business. Her co-workers and I got to talking about the title bore. An older gentleman with graying hair and a bushy mustache warned me that the river was damned and that those who watched the title bore three nights in a row get dragged under by the living dead, never to be seen or heard from again. He claimed their blood had turned to the River Brown over the years. At first, I laughed and dismissed it as playful folklore to scare an out-of-towner like me. He'd probably told my sister another variation of the story. It was not like her to fall for silly tales, so I was kind enough not to tease her too much for believing in this superstitious nonsense. I banished thoughts of the Chocolate River from my mind and headed back home to play video games with my sister. By late afternoon on the following day, I asked my sister to come with me to see the tidal bore, which took place around 4.45pm. She reluctantly agreed to take me, but abandoned me to buy treats at the chocolatier shop not far from where we parked. Careful not to slip on the rocks, I approached the muddy river and took a seat on a stable concrete slab protruding from the landscape. The cool autumn air and the strong breeze made me thankful that I'd grabbed my leather jacket on the way out. My hands searched through its pockets until my fingers caught my cell phone. Checked the schedule and smiled in anticipation. The title bore was going to come in any minute now. I waited patiently, head arched toward the end of the river until I saw a wave on the horizon. As the water approached, I began hearing a dreadful sound. Some person or creature was groaning. I averted my gaze from the water just for a second to see what was making the noise. By the time I turned my head back, I felt a splash of cold, mucky water flooding my shoes. An audible yelp escaped my lips and I jumped to higher ground. I did not expect the river to swell quite that much. The wave continued its journey up the stream, taking the moaning sound away with it, and the water eventually evened out. That night, I did a bit of research on the Chocolate River. There had been no less than nine cases of mysterious deaths and disappearances since the causeway doors had opened three years prior. Two of the victims were part of a camera crew getting preliminary shots for a documentary on the restoration of the Chocolate River. Their equipment washed up on shore several weeks later, so it was assumed they drowned and that the river had fed their bodies into the Atlantic Ocean. Another case talked about a young photographer. A piece of his shirt clinging to a boulder on the banks of the river was all they ever found of him. Authorities speculated that the man trying to get a nice photo had slipped and fallen in. 
I remember being taken by surprise by the volume of water that suddenly reached me when the tide came in, so I could understand how a couple of accidents might have happened. As I read through the articles, I began to paint an entirely different picture in my mind. There were only so many alleged suicides and accidents that could happen before it raised a couple questions, and I was shocked the authorities had done nothing about it. The next day, we drove to Hopewell Rocks, which was the meeting point between the Atlantic Ocean and the Chocolate River. Hopewell Rocks had almost made it on the list of seven natural wonders of the world. I was enthralled by the beautiful landscape of massive water-eroded boulders. It was impressive to see the natural marks that perfectly outlined just how high the water could go. You could see sediments and rows of kelp clinging to the stones. I was standing under one of the boulders for a photo and looked up to see that the water reached at least five feet over me during high tide. That was probably how handprints had gotten up there. I noticed them around the highest edges of some of the larger boulders. They resembled ancient cave paintings in that they were simple and lacked the kind of profanity you would expect from regular graffiti. I explored the beach in complete awe, examining every cavernous nook and cranny along the way. We got back in time for the next evening tide, which took place around 6pm. This time, my sister joined me. I'd packed us a couple of sandwiches, which we ate while we waited for the show. I'd chosen a spot on the higher ground to avoid my running shoes getting flooded again. The first time was unpleasant enough. As time went on, the streets around us emptied and the sounds of the city faded away. It was not long before we began hearing strange noises. A chorus of agonized screams, howls, and groans erupted from every direction as the tide approached. I could see fear in my sister's eyes as she pointed toward the river. I followed her gaze, spotting dark shapes underneath the surface. Just like the ocean flooded the river, fear flooded every inch of me. I would have stayed frozen there, and my sister not grabbed me by the arm and pulled me to the car. I could still see something under the water as we drove over the causeway. On the third night, I returned to the Chocolate River alone. My sister was still freaked out about what we had seen and heard the night before. I got to the river early and watched the sun slowly crawl toward the horizon, giving me very little light to observe the tide. It was due to come around 7pm, but I did not let the lack of light deter me. I cautiously approached the river, sat down, and waited until I saw the vague outline of a wave in the distance. Again, moans and screams filled the air, this time louder than ever. I could see something sticking out of the wave as it rolled toward me. One by one, hundreds of muddied fingers reached through the water's surface. I only had time to see the fingers turning into hands before I remembered what the man had told me. The undead would drag me under if I watched the tidal bore three nights in a row. I pounced to my feet and staggered toward the car as quickly as my legs could take me. My foot hit a crack in the concrete, my ankle twisted harshly. The pain brought me to my knees, but when I turned around, I could see fingers reaching over the riverbank and I forced myself back to my injured feet. I ran to the car, throwing the door open and slamming it shut in one rapid motion. I turned the car on and the headlights illuminated the river. 
see arms reaching over the edge. Tiger shrieking, I hightailed it out of there. I didn't go back to the Chocolate River after that night. I spent what was left of the week in my sister's apartment, trying hard to forget what I saw. On the plane home, I looked outside the window and saw the Chocolate River below, and I swear, even from a distance, I could see shadows under the surface. I can't help but wondering, did the dead start inhabiting the river after the causeway doors opened? was the causeway built to keep them out. Order some or get out. The disheveled and obese bartender belted out from behind the counter. A bottle of Glenlivet, I replied without so much as glancing up from my book. Moments later, he slammed the bottle down in front of me along with a small glass. You best be able to pay for this, he grunted, looking down at me. I offered him a hundred dollar bill, but I kept my grip tightly around the thin strip of paper when he attempted to snatch it from between my fingers. If you show me such disrespect again, I will refill this bottle with whatever noxious fluids I can drain from your gullet, I said in a tone free from any semblance of emotion. He began to retort until I raised my eyes up to meet his gaze. His face grew pale as I allowed him the smallest glimpse of what I truly am, a sight which caused him to offer a trembling and anguished apology for his rudeness. He'd proved quite respectful for the remainder of the evening. Perhaps I lingered upon this uncomfortable stool for far too long without requesting anything from the lowly dive bar I currently occupied. Regardless of that, the one thing I will not tolerate is disrespect. He had no way of knowing what or who I am truly beneath this mimicked husk of human flesh I rested inside of, but that did not grant him the right to be so rude to me. His name may not be in my ledger yet, but I could easily make his transition quite traumatic when his time to meet with me formally should arrive. Today's appointment was not one that I looked forward to. It's true that I would not exactly call my responsibilities enjoyable, but I had performed my duty for eons. As populations grew, I became forced to bring in assistance. Co-workers, for the lack of a better term. Guiding those who had passed on through the transitions from this world to whichever one was next for them was no small task. When the world was still quite young and far less feet walked upon it, my duties were fairly simple. My ledger was far slimmer than the one I carry with me now. The company I share with my fellow reapers has grown vast over the centuries. So much so that I rarely have to take part in such meetings as the one that I face today. Mostly I allow my underlings to carry the burden of my work, though certain individuals warrant my direct involvement. It's good to see you, old friend, the tall, well-built, and youthful man said as he approached me with his hand outstretched. And you, I replied, grasping his hand in mine. He took the stool to my left and helped himself to a bottle of whiskey that sat before me on the countertop. I beckoned the filthy bartender for a second glass, which he quickly brought over to where my colleague sat, without so much as uttering a single word. He seems nice, 
my old friend remarked with a smile. He does now, I replied with a proud sneer across my face. What did you do, Thanatos? The youthful man beside me asked with a mischievous grin, now replacing the kind smile. He was rude, so I allowed him a small peek. <laughs> I chuckled. Contrary to popular belief, I do have quite the sense of humor. I expect many imagine a creature deemed the personification of death to be somewhat morbid or insufferably melancholy. It is true that I'm fully aware of the time and place for everything rule, but I am known for bringing much merriment and levity to my peers. There are few who walk this land who have much concrete knowledge as to who or what I am, and most who have seen my true face have only endured a solitary and terminal meeting with me. It'd be quite crude on my behalf to bring jokes to such an engagement. You never changed, Thanatos, my friend remarked while sharing my laughter. So, he began again, shifting to a new topic of conversation. What's all this about? he asked. Why'd you call me here? I'd hoped we could converse just a little while longer before the context of our meeting was revealed. We'd not shared each other's company in quite some time, and I wished to enjoy our time together before diverting to the topic at hand. I knew all too well how stubborn the man could be when he made a request that went unanswered for too long. I considered attempting to delay the inevitable conversation, but I feared time was becoming short, as he wished to get straight down to business, as it were. Very well. As you wish, my dear companion. Your time has come, my old friend. I replied to the spirited young man to my left. <laughs> Cute, he replied, brushing off my words while taking a deep swig from his glass. What are we really here for? He asked, with much more firm expression than he wore previously. It is as I say, I remarked, opening my ancient book to reveal its weathered parchment within. I rippled through the pages, though I knew exactly the location of the one I sought. I do not deny that I was dragging my heels, so to speak. I did not want this for him, though I truly could not know where he was meant to be relocated to. There are many realms and an abundance of planes of existence, many of them I know and can freely enter and exit at will. There are, however, some that I hold little information about. I have theories on such places, but it could be said that they are a little above my pay grade. Whatever residence the man beside me was destined for, it was not one that I could visit until perhaps my own name appeared upon the pages of my book. In truth, I have no way to know if such a thing could even occur. We all come from somewhere, and we're all bound for someplace else. Whether or not the same rules apply to those such as I, there's no way for me to know. After the unnecessary leafing of the parchment bound between the weathered and ancient buildings in my book, I slid it across the countertop to my colleague. The wrinkled page held only one name below the numerical order, representing the date of this very day. There was no timestamp. I assumed that perhaps the fates saw it fit to allow me some measure of control over the ending of this particular rendezvous. There's been some sort of mistake my friend exclaimed, sounding remarkably similar to much of the bargaining I've heard in my vast lifetime. 
they do not make mistakes, I replied, fully aware that he knew this to be true. There's a balance, you see. Death is neither a punishment nor an assault. It is a necessity, I'm afraid. That's what those who measure and cut the threads have told me, anyway. Were I to liken my duties to your understanding of employment, I imagine those three would be considered my upper management. It's not for me to understand the reasoning behind their actions, nor the methods in which they demand them to be carried out. We're all but servants to one higher authority or another. This included the man who sat upon the stool beside me, currently frowning in an expression of utter confusion and bewilderment. This isn't right, the man exclaimed, still bartering for clarity. This is not for me to say, I replied. You know this as well as I, I continued. Let me meet with them, he said. Clearly there's been a mix-up of some kind. He shook his head as his tone gave way to anger. He pounded his fist on the bar, causing the obese bartender to jump, and the small gathering of individuals at the large table at the rear of the building to turn and gaze toward us. Take me to them, Thanatos, he ordered. Several more names began to faintly appear on the aged apartment that had previously only reflected one. Among these names was one Salvador Anchor, the moniker that was assigned to the large man who now stood trembling behind the bar in the grease-stained shirt. Calm yourself, I demanded, feeling a similar frustration that an exhausted parent may feel for their fit-pitching toddler. I'll not calm myself, Thanatos! He retorted with his face reddening. I do not die, he spat, pounding the countertop again as the walls of the small pub began to vibrate. I cannot die, he continued, bringing more violence to the shuddering building. Take me to them, I order you. He growled as he hammered his fists one last time under the counter that crumbled below his clenched fingers. In an instant, the walls blew apart from the ceiling, crumpled down upon us. A fiery explosion decimated the remaining structure, immediately turning the residents of the building into ash, with the exception of my colleague and I, who still sat perched upon the undamaged stools that remained protected by our presence. I stared into the eyes of my old friend, feeling a sense of disgust and a slight twinge of hatred for his actions. I held his gaze while a handful of my fellow reapers appeared around us to escort those who were not meant to perish this day to whatever afterlife was planned for them. Their souls stood still in the same locations at which their bodies had occupied only moments before. Each of them wore the same expressions of surprise shock that I've witnessed upon the faces of the recently deceased so many times before. My old friend cut his eyes away from my accusing gaze. A streak of shame seemed to line his now heavy brow. How many more innocent lives must your temper claim? I asked in a scornful voice. I did not mean to grow so angry, he said, shaking his head slowly from side to side. I'm not ready to die. His words grew soft and solemn. I still have so much left to do. That does not grant you permission to prematurely bring an end to innocent lives. I yelled as though I were a father showing heavy disappointments in my unruly offspring. He nodded, 
and an embarrassed acknowledgement of his foul deed, along with, I would assume, so many more that had come before this. You once cared for this world and its people, I continued my lecture with, no desire or intention of holding back my anger with the man I regarded as a friend. This is why your time has come. I gestured toward the smoldering rubble that used to be a pleasant, though somewhat dingy bar. Do you not see what you've become? Some childish tantrums that bring such misery are not the products of a man I once knew. His eyes became glassy as they quivered, bringing forth tears that streamed down his face. Maybe you're right, he replied in a trembling voice. I've grown old, Thanatos. He gave a small smile and his furrowed brow grew soft and peaceful once more. I don't think I realized how heavy the burden of it all had gotten. We sat in silence for some time. Perhaps I should not have let my own anger get the better of me. It's true that I was disappointed in his actions, but maybe I should have arranged this meeting in a more secluded location. I was well aware of the chaos of his temper and what it could cause, but I only hoped to share one last drink with my old friend before we said our final goodbyes. He was always partial to the Glenlivet, since its creation, anyway. Alcohol did not have the same inebriating effect on beings like us, but when we wore a mortal shell, we could enjoy some of its more playful qualities. I was selfish in my desire to share this moment together, and I would share his guilt over the events that took place this night. I'm scared, my old friend, he said, breaking the silence that now encompassed the rubble we currently occupied. <laughs> I imagine you hear that a lot. He chuckled through his laughter, was free of levity. We're all afraid in the face of a new chapter, I said, my voice growing melancholy. It's really over, he said, more to himself than I. Nothing is ever over, my dear friend, I replied. You know this as well as I. It's as they say, when you close a door... I open a window, he said, finishing my obvious reference. Perhaps where you're headed will be far less responsibility, I replied, attempting to sound reassuring. You may be but a part of something and not be forced to bear the weight of it anymore. I continued, feeling more compassionate toward the crumpling entity I had held close to my heart since this world's inception. Who carry my burdens once I'm no longer able to do so? He asked as his borrowed eyes began to well up again. Someone new, I said, wrapping my arm around the man who seemed little more than a child to me at the moment. Someone fresh, I continued, lightly rubbing my friend's back in an effort to console his heavy heart. Perhaps someone who will find love in the responsibilities you tired of so very long ago. He nodded and wrapped his own weary arm around me. How is it that you still know me so well? He asked, forming his lips into a small smile. Perhaps I'm just really good at my job, I replied, and we shared a genuine chuckle as though we were still as close as we once were.
Shall we? I asked, nodding my head in the direction of the simple wooden door that had materialized behind us. You'll walk with me? He asked, staring at the tarnished exit to another place. For as long as I'm able, I replied, rising up from the stool that still remained untouched among the otherwise destroyed tavern. Who knows, he said. Maybe we'll be together again someday soon. He offered me a genuine smile that gave me the realization that he'd accepted the reality of what lies ahead. Someday, perhaps, I replied. For now, I believe I have miles to go before I sleep. With that, I pulled open the ancient wooden door which led to a path I'd guided many souls down before. I walked side by side with the man I'd not conversed with for many years before this unfortunate rendezvous. We spoke of events we'd shared throughout the ages, and we looked upon each other as brothers. He talked of how exhausted he'd become, and that it took this very meeting for him to fully appreciate the gravity of many atrocities he'd allowed to befall the people he'd once adored. By the time we reached the end of the path that gave way to an enormous and elegant iron-like gate, he thanked me for being a friend to him this one final time. As the hinges gave way and the aura of what lay beyond reached out toward us, I watched the fabricated human shell melt from around the boy I'd once known to reveal the god that he'd become. I'd almost forgotten how warm and vibrant he glowed. He turned to me for the first time before he stepped into the beyond. Watch over them for me, my friend, he said, his voice strong and proud. He turned his gaze back toward the entity within his reach. I feel lighter all of a sudden. His words echoed as they reverberated against whatever wonders lay on the other side. For a moment I was almost jealous of him. I hoped to see what he now looked upon, but it remained out of my grasp. I'll see you again, my old friend, were his final words to me as his light blended with the glorious hues beyond. As the gates swung shut once more, I heard the heavy latch lock him away from me. A deep, sudden sadness ripped through me while I stood in place, staring blankly at the entrance I longed so badly to cross through myself. A legacy has ended. The world will mourn for its loss, though they may not be aware of the reason that brings their tears. Perhaps they'll never even know what it is that they've lost, but I will. Fare thee well, my dearest friend.